0: This Jewish History Podcast is dedicated by my dear friend, Mike Fisher, in loving memory, and Le'Ile Nishmas' father, Mayor Ben Feitel, who was a history enthusiast, whose love of teaching and learning was inspiring and infectious. I know it's been a long time since our last Jewish History Podcast episode. It's been a long hiatus. I deeply appreciate all of you who have emailed me to gently, Nudge me to restart it. Of course, my email address is RabbiWolby at gmail.com. I will tell you that I've been busy since the last Jewish History Podcast episode. Since the last episode, I've recorded hundreds of other episodes on my five other podcasts. The Parsha Podcast, The Ethics Podcast, This Jewish Life, Torah 101, and The Mitzvah Podcast. So if you feel like you're missing out on the Jewish History podcast. You can always listen and get your fix on the other shows. Since the last Jewish History Podcast, I had the great fortune of publishing a book titled Upon a Ten-String Tarp. And I'll tell you that I've already been working hard on the next book. Thank God I've kept busy. But now we're back on the Jewish History Podcast as well. It took a while, but we're back From the Torch Center in Houston, Texas, let us begin. Our people were stricken with a terrible blow on October 7th, 2023. Palestinian Arab terrorists infiltrated Israel and perpetrated horrific massacres of Holocaust-like stale and brutality. More than a thousand innocent civilians were killed. Thousands more were injured. Hundreds were taken hostage. Our nation experienced indiscriminate slaughter of civilians of Nazi-like proportions. And unlike the Nazis, they worked assiduously to conceal their genocide. These monsters publicized it and broadcasted it for the world to see. And of course, the brutality is unimaginable. We've all seen the videos. We've all read the accounts. It's tragic. It's sad. It's enraging. Our nation really is suffering. And of course, Israel launched a war. The war with the express objective of completely uprooting and limiting Hamas. And of course, now we're in the middle of the war. And war is always difficult. For Israel, it's doubly difficult. They don't have the strategic depth. They're always fighting a war for their homeland war upends the economy. Israel did a total mobilization of their military reservists. So Israel has a standing army, but the fighting force, the true fighting force are the reservists. And that doesn't quite grind the economy to a halt, but it definitely hinders the vibrancy of the economy. Now, Israel... The economy is very much interwoven with a lot of various Arabs and Palestinians who are part of the Israeli workforce, and that also throws another wrench into the economy because you can't live with them, you can't live without them. It's really disrupting the Israeli economy as the war goes on, and it's very uncertain what's going to be. We don't know how things will progress. The Israeli invasion of Gaza is underway, and from a military perspective, it seems to be going... Relatively well, they managed to, to cut Gaza in half to separate the north, which is the, the the epicenter of Hamas, from the south. And there are major efforts to move the civilian population southward. But our soldiers are going into the hornet's nest. Gaza is laden with booby traps. It has a labyrinthine tunnel network. And the terrorists are embedded in the civilian population, and they're using the civilian population as human shields. The centers of command and control are deliberately placed in civilian centers and schools and hospitals, in mosques, and that's only in Gaza. There are, of course, fears of escalation. What's going to be with Hezbollah in in southern Lebanon? What about the Houthis in Yemen? The various proxies of Iran In Syria and elsewhere, what's going to be with them? The Americans brought two carrier fleets to the eastern Mediterranean. That's not for Hamas. This war can yet escalate. And as is true with all matters of Israel, the international community can really unite. The United Nations can unite for one thing, and that is to oppose Israel. And it's all all backwards all over the world. Hamas sympathizers take the streets to condemn Israel and to blame Israel for these terrible attacks. And now that Israel's fighting back and trying to eliminate Hamas, these same terrorist sympathizers are condemning Israel once again. So it's, it's even worse than a double standard. Hamas is given a pass for deliberately targeting civ- civilians and Israel, who does more than any army in world history, to avoid civilian casualties, even going so far as to endanger their own soldiers, which, of course, I think is a terrible mistake, but they are condemned. And as the war is progressing, the international pressure is mounting for a pause, for a humanitarian pause, for a ceasefire, and Israel, of course, is no stranger to this, in every war, once Israel gets momentum and it seems like they're about to actualize their objectives, suddenly the United Nations convenes, security council, international community, let's stop Israel. But the war caused, the war really, the attack and the subsequent war, it caused a fundamental change in focus of both Israel and of the world when it comes to the Middle East. Over the past few years, Israel sought to bypass the Palestinian, the local Arab issue, and instead work around them, try to forge relations with various other Arab and Muslim countries. So a couple of years ago, we had the Abraham Accords. Israel normalized relations with a variety of Islamic countries, Bahrain, Morocco, the UAE, Sudan, and before this, terrible attack was perpetrated they were flirting with various other primarily persian gulf states primarily saudi saudi arabia to broaden these accords and the theory was let's deal with the with the arab world and we'll deal with the palestinians later they looked outside of israel and they allowed a de facto terror state of hamas in Gaza to endure and to grow. Hamas, which has in its charter and never denies us, they want, they desire, the complete and utter destruction of Israel by any means possible. No one contests this. This is universally agreed upon, and they say it openly. And they were allowed to continue to exist, to endure and to have a de facto country with millions of citizens in Gaza. And there was a, a fatal, misguided conception in Israel that Hamas would mellow. After all, now, now they're sovereigns. They have to deal with sanitation and with garbage collection and, and sewage and healthcare and water and police. Maybe they will forget about their stated goal of eliminating Israel by any means necessary. Israel tolerated Hamas. And even when they engaged with Hamas, as it did four times, since Hamas took over Gaza and has had unilateral control of the entire Gaza Strip in 2007, there were four wars. But these were not wars of elimination. These were not wars where Israel sought out to eradicate and to completely dismantle Hamas, they exchange fire, proportional responses. They shoot rockets. They try to infiltrate. They try to kidnap. Well, we'll bomb them. We'll bomb selected Hamas targets. We'll destroy some infrastructure. We'll destroy some terror tunnels. We'll kill some senior Hamas leaders. You notice that Hamas doesn't have any junior leaders. They're all senior. But the menace... Was left in place. And ever since October 7th, all this has changed. It became clear to everyone that Hamas cannot be tolerated, and we have to finish the job once and for all. And one of the results of this heinous terror attack is the return of the whole Palestinian question to center stage. the Israeli-Saudi negotiations are in pause. And the whole nation is mobilized for the war effort to try to defeat Hamas. And of course, there are a lot of questions. How did this happen? Israel's vaunted intelligence apparatus was played by a bunch of terrorists. It's an intelligence failure of epic proportions. What happened with the great security and all the AI and the smart fences? It was all proven to be a total failure. And this will be thoroughly investigated after the war. And of course, heads will roll. And some people are focusing on, well, who's going to replace Gaza? If Israel is successful in their aim and Gaza is rooted out of its Hamas leaders, who's going to rule Gaza? Will it be the Israelis? Will it be the Palestinian authority that rules Judea and Samaria, the West Bank? What's going to be with the general Arab-Israeli conflict that really hasn't seen much progress in a very long time? What's going to be the long-term solution to this seemingly intractable problem? We have a very narrow strip of land... And there are, there are, you know, around 7 million Jews and they're living amongst millions of Arabs. And some of the Arabs are Israeli citizens, the Israeli Arabs. And some are Palestinians living in Judea and Samaria, which has been ruled by Israel, really. It depends. Obviously, it's very complicated because there's areas A, B, and C. Israel has security oversight, but they work together with the Palestinian Authority, but really they don't. It's a complicated question. But then you have the Palestinians in Gaza which has been completely ruled by Hamas since 2007. And they want a state, state of their own, or maybe they claim to do Do they actually want. It's tricky. It's nuanced. It's a very difficult problem. And there are many indications that they don't want a state alongside Israel. They want a state instead of Israel, which is what they say, from the river to the sea, which, of course, the Jews cannot tolerate. The old saying goes, the Arabs want to kill the Jews And the Jews don't want to be killed. And neither side is willing to compromise. That's the problem. And this whole question is squarely back on the international agenda. It's in the media. It's in social media. Everyone is talking about this. And as is true with respect to all matters of the Arab-Israeli conflict, there is ignorance abound. And the ignorance is not only amongst the general population, not only amongst the non-Jews, even within our communities, even amongst so-called leaders of our communities, there is ignorance. A friend of mine told me that he went to shul on Yom Kippur, and the rabbi's whole speech is bashing Israel, castigating, rebuking Israel. Their occupiers... It's an apartheid state, genocide, they're colonizers. And when she finished her speech, the congregation gave gave her a standing ovation. How shameful. You have the congregation for a few days a year and the thing you find appropriate to do is to malign the one Jewish state? And that's the message you want to share with your congregants? Unfortunately, American Jewry has identified less and less with their Jewish brethren in Israel over the recent decades. Now, obviously, this is an overgeneralization, but this is a worrying trend. And I'll say, this is not only a problem in other communities. In our very own community, a friend of mine who lives in our neighborhood, he tells me that his daughter's all confused. She doesn't know what to believe. She doesn't know the backstory. Is Israel really an apartheid state? Is it a colonial state? Uh, Are they massacring Palestinian children as she sees on TikTok? Did Israel steal Arab land? Face it, our children are exposed to the big bad world. And we know how biased that world is against Israel, but it's very persuasive. Social media is designed to move hearts and minds. And it's no shock that many Jews are either siding with our enemies, or at least are sympathetic to our enemies, or are in favor of a more balanced approach. And this is bringing me out of the Jewish history podcast, Retirement. I wish it was under better circumstances. But today I want to address some of the history of the Arab-Israeli conflict. It's the Arab-Israeli conflict, but it's really the Jewish-Muslim conflict over the land and really elsewhere as well over the past centuries. I want to talk about the history, the background, the backstory, some of the various solutions that were proposed for this seemingly intractable problem, why they were flawed, why they failed, and maybe we can conceive of a way to go forward forward a road map, if you will, a path to peace, if you will, a path to stability, if you will, going forward. The Jews have had a very long history of dwelling in the land that we today call the land of Israel. You could call it Palestine. You could call it the land of Canaan. You could call it the Holy Land, the Promised Land. Whatever you want to call it, the Jews have had a very long history there. Thousands of years ago, Abraham was commanded by God to leave his homeland and to travel to the land of Canaan. In the land, Abraham is promised by God multiple times that he will inherit the land. Abraham has two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael will become the father of a great nation, the Ishmaelites, and that's going to be very germane to our story. But the Bible makes it very clear that Abraham's true heir is Isaac. Abraham is promised the land. Isaac is promised the land as well by God. His son, Jacob, is likewise promised the land by God. And the nation, of course, descends to Egypt, and they have the Exodus, and it's 40 years in the wilderness, and the entire effort of the bulk of the Torah is a nation trying to get back to the land And they conquer much of the land on the east side of the Jordan River. What's today the kingdom of Jordan. Under the leadership of Moshe, they conquer those lands. They settle those lands. Moshe dies before the nation enters the land and Joshua succeeds him. The nation, under the leadership of Joshua, crosses over the Jordan and begin a seven-year conquest of the lands to the west of the Jordan and they divide the land amongst the tribes, thus begins the first commonwealth. The nation settles the land and flourishes in it for more than 800 years. There are enemies that have not been fully vanquished in the initial conquest. Most notable is the notorious Philistines, who are a thorn in the side of the nation for generations. But for the most part, the nation is secure in the land. And all this is documented. And we know the names of the leaders, the various judges and kings. We today you could still read the contemporaneously written books of Joshua, of Judges, of Samuel, of Kings. David, the king of the Jews, he acquires Temple Mount, the same site that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice, the same site where Jacob had his dream with the ladder, ascending to heaven with the angels going up and the angels going down the ladder. David acquires Jerusalem and establishes his capital in that holy city. And again, this is circa a thousand years BCE. This is a very, very long time ago. This is 3,000 years ago. Jerusalem was the capital of the Jews. Solomon David's son and successor builds the first temple on Temple Mount, and that temple endured for hundreds of years. Obviously, we're glossing over a lot of details. There was a schism, the people split into two nations, the nations of Judah and Israel. But the fact that Jewish civilization was established and flourished in the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, a very long time ago, that fact is incontrovertible. But they didn't remain in the land. There was exile. There was dispersion. There was destruction. The Assyrians came and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. The Babylonians came subsequently and destroyed the southern kingdom of Judah. The temple was destroyed, and much of the nation were exiled from the land. The majority of Jews left, were forced to leave. But a small faction remained in the land. Our tradition tells us that the Jews were kept in the land for a specific reason, because there were some industries that were native to the land that the Babylonians wanted to maintain and perpetuate, and they kept a group of Jews there. The majority of the Jews spend 70 years in Babylon, and then they come back. Not all, not even a majority, but a sizable amount return. And once again, reestablish a flourishing civilization in the land. And they even have some degree of sovereignty, some degree of autonomy. And thus begins the second commonwealth. And they build the second temple. The nation is back in its homeland. Again, it doesn't last. They have run-ins with the Greeks. We know the Hanukkah story. And then the Romans arrive. And again, we're oversimplifying. But a repeat of what ended the first commonwealth happens to the second. The temple is destroyed. Much of the nation is exiled. And the Romans attempt to de-Judaize the land, to stick it to the Jews. They rename Judea. After the long extinct Canaanite nation, the Philistines, Judea becomes Philistinia. Jerusalem becomes Alia Capitolina. Shechem becomes Neopolis. Jews are barred from living in Jerusalem. Temple Mount is repurposed as a temple to the pagan god Jupiter. The nation's civilization in the land is severely depressed and compromised. But at all times, there were Jews and communities in the land. Ever since Joshua's conquest of the land, there has never been a time where Israel, the land that we today call Israel, or Palestine, if you will, was completely bereft of Jews. Even when the locusts of Jewish life went elsewhere, there were always factions of Jews in the land. It's a bit of a, of a myth of the secular Zionist ethos that Israel was completely denuded of Jews until the Zionist Revolution. The truth is, there were always Jews in the land since the times of Joshua. But even the Jews who were in the diaspora, outside of the land, Israel, the Holy Land, Jerusalem were never far, far from their hearts. Wherever they were, they would pray towards Jerusalem. And they would pray for the restoration of Jewish life in the land. And they would pray for Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And they would pray for the Davidic monarchy to be restored. Throughout Jewish history, Jewish communities would pine, would yearn, would hope, would strive to return to Zion. The Jewish connection to the land is very ancient. And the bond that our people have with this land is unbreakable. The Jewish heart is never far from the land of their forefathers. The Muslims rise to the world stage in the 7th century, and they quickly become a major force in the world. They conquer enormous lands, and they convert enormous masses of people to their religion. The descendants of Ishmael, Abraham's other son, who had long been nomadic pagans, unite into a great monotheistic religion with the express mission to spread that religion by whatever means necessary. Early Islam believed that there is a justification to use the sword to convert others to Islam. It's not clear if Islam today has repudiated said policy. I'm not an expert in Islamic law. But the Jews suffered severely at the hands of the early Muslims. When the Jews of Medina refused to convert to Islam, the Mohammedans acted towards them with what would come to be characteristic brutality. From the Jewish tribe, Banu Kuraza. I don't know if I'm mispronouncing that. I might be mispronouncing that. Hundreds were killed. Hundreds were enslaved. Two other Jewish tribes, Banu Nadir and Banu Kainuka, again, I'm not sure if I'm mispronouncing that, they were expelled. This is at the very onset of Islam. And this is how Jewish-Islamic relations began with this violent note with the barbaric Islamic slaughter of entire Jewish communities. Now, Islam was not content with remaining static in Arabia. They began to sweep through the world, conquering vast lands and forcing the captured to convert. And they conquered the land of Israel, the land of Canaan in 638. It was then ruled by the Byzantines. And to their credit... The conditions of the Jewish residents in the land improved, going from the Romans/Byzantines to the Muslims. For example, Jews were allowed to live in Jerusalem for the first time in over 500 years, and in general, over the course of the majority of history, Islam was much more tolerant to Jews than Christians, and we're using these terms relatively, of course. But now Muslims settled the land. And they established holy places in the land. Although Muhammad himself never went to Israel, never went to Palestine, never went to the Holy Land, Jerusalem and Temple Mount quickly assumed great importance in Islamic life. The Temple Mount becomes the Haram al Sharif, the noble sanctuary. And the Muslims build the Al Aqsa Mosque on the southern part of Temple Mount, in the center, where the actual temple stood, they erect the Dome of the Rock. That's a shrine covering the foundation stone, the very first bedrock stone that God created in this world. That stone is featured prominently in our history as well. In the Second Temple, again, this is a thousand years before Islam, they did not have the Ark of the Covenant. And instead, in the Holy of Holies, the high priest on Yom Kippur, Did the service on said rock, on the rock that's now covered by the dome. 1700 years after David established Jerusalem as the Jewish capital, Jerusalem, Al Quds, becomes a very significant location in Islamic life as well. Now again, this, this is more than a thousand years ago. We may think of this as ancient history, but if we don't understand this ancient history, it's going to be very difficult for us to understand the conflict in modern times. The epicenter of the conflict is our holiest site, the site where the third temple is set to be located. And it's co-located with the Muslims' third holiest site after Mecca and Medina. And that's just the epicenter. The entire land, it's almost an extension of that same conflict. We believe it's ours by right. God created the world, gave it to us. And we lived here and we conquered it thousands of years ago. And we bought it and conquered it again in in recent times. By any standard, we argue it's ours. And the Muslims, of course, claim it as theirs. They conquered it in the 7th century And Islam is not known for its tendency to forfeit land that they conquered. And again, I'm not an expert in Islamic law, but from what I gather, Islamic law or Islamic philosophy mandates that any land that was conquered by Muslims must forever remain under Islamic control. And thus it's sacrilege for the land of Israel for any part of it. Be controlled by non Muslims. Not to say that this is indicative of anything, but when I was researching this subject, I saw something really interesting. I read how one Jewish religious authority stated and wrote that it is forbidden for Jews to forfeit a single inch of the Holy Land to the Arabs. And then I read that a Muslim religious law authority, he wrote and he taught that it is forbidden for the Muslims to forfeit a single inch, the same words, of Palestine to the Zionists. It struck me that they both used the same term. And being completely ignorant of Islamic law, I don't know if this is a universally accepted position. I know for sure that there are reputable halakhic authorities So, authorities of Jewish religious law that would permit under some circumstances to forfeit the land, maybe in exchange for peace. But this is illustrative of the seemingly intractable conflict that contributes to the generalized Arab-Israeli conflict. That's important to stress. Over the course of the centuries after the rise of the Muslims, the main opponent of the Muslims was not the Jews, it was the Christians. For hundreds of years, the Christians and the Muslims warred over control of the Holy Land. And this, of course, is known as the period of the Crusades. So from the initial conquest of the Muslims in the 630s, it was controlled by a variety of Muslim empires for about 400 years. And again, at all times, there were pockets of Jews in the land, but the vast majority of Jews were elsewhere, primarily in Babylon, in modern-day Iraq. In the end of the 11th century, the Pope urged the Christians to launch a crusade, to liberate the city of Jerusalem from the Muslim infidels. And any Christian that joined this effort will have all their sins forgiven. And the loot from this conquest will be distributed to the Crusaders. And of course, the Jews are caught in the crossfire. As the European Christian Crusaders begin their march to Jerusalem, they need to be entertained along the way. And what entertains medieval Christians like torturing, like massacring Jews? Along the way to Jerusalem, the barbaric crusaders massacred tens of thousands of Jews and destroyed many Jewish communities. Once they arrive in Jerusalem, the crusaders succeed in eliminating the Muslims and conquering the city and behaving with absolute barbaric cruelty. Not only do they kill all the Muslims of the city, but they chop off their hands and feet for good measure. Jerusalem's Jews fared no better. After they quote unquote liberated the city, they herded all the Jews of Jerusalem. This is somewhere between a thousand and three thousand Jews into the main synagogues and burned down the synagogues with all its inhabitants alive. All told, the first crusade resulted in the murder of more than 10,000 Jews and by some estimates up to 25,000. The Crusaders proceeded to erase all signs of Jewish and Muslim presence in the land. The mosque on Temple Mount was converted into a church and Muslims and Jews were barred from entering Jerusalem on pain of death. And the Muslims fought back. In 1187 Sultan Saladin from Egypt, he came and conquered the cities from the Christians. And that resulted in in another crusade. Jerusalem traded hands back and forth between the Christians and the Muslims. During this time, the Jews the Muslims were not primary antagonists. The Christians were a lot more hostile to the Jews. In fact, up until recently, The Muslims were always friendlier to the Jews than the Christians. And again, we're using these terms relatively. During the early medieval era, the Jews enjoyed what became known as the Golden Age of Spain. Jews were living under Muslims in Spain, but they were more tolerant. And that was wonderful until a more radical version of Muslims conquered Spain and the Jews had to choose. You want to convert to Islam? You want to flee. The most famous refugee from Spain at the time was, of course, the Rambam, Moshe ben Maimon. And this adds another element that's necessary for us to understand. If we want to understand the conflict between the Arabs and the Israelis in the background, Islam is not a monolith. At the very beginning of Islam, it splintered into two major factions, the Sunnis and the Shias which are effectively different religions. And even within the Sunnis and the Shias, there are multiple factions. Some more moderate, quote-unquote, more tolerant, more liberal, more progressive, and some more radical. How literally are we interpreting the Quran? And these factions have different opinions and very different world views. But for the larger part of the past millennium, the fundamental conflict over the land of Palestine, of Canaan, of Israel, was not really on full display. The overwhelming majority of Jews lived outside of the land, in Europe, in North Africa, other places in the Middle East. And besides for the Crusader periods, the land was controlled by a variety of Muslim empires. The Ayyubids, the Mamaluts, eventually the Ottoman Turks. And each one had a different gradient of tolerance for the Jews. But the main center of Jewish life was elsewhere. And this whole idea of Jews coming back to the land and establishing sovereignty, it was a dream. It was an active dream, but it was a messianic dream. But slowly, that small core of Jewish life in the land grew. After Jews were expelled from Spain and Portugal, many refugees made their way to the Holy Land. There was a large influx in the 16th century of Jewish immigrants to the land. The Jews lived under very trying circumstances. They existed in perpetual poverty and privation. The land was mostly non-arable, or at least it was considered as such. They had very weak economic prospects, and they were in very small numbers, but they were there. And the Muslims were more tolerant of them than the Christians were of the Jews in Europe, but the Jews in the land did suffer at the hands of their Muslim overlords. For example, in 1834, Jewish homes in Jerusalem were sacked, Jewish women were violated. That same year, Jews in Hebron and Hevron were massacred. The Muslims even got a taste for blood libels. Blood libels, this myth that Jews slaughter Gentiles and use their blood for religious rituals like baking matzas, it was mostly a Christian thing. But it, it did suit the Muslim palate once they got a taste for it. In eighteen forty the infamous blood libel of Damascus led to Jews being arrested and violently tortured and shuls, pillaged, and Torah scrolls destroyed. Anti-Semitism found a home in the Muslim world. And even as recently as the 1970s, the Saudi King Faisal, he would tell journalists and foreign leaders that Judaism requires the Jews to kill Gentiles and to consume their blood. These are some examples of the hatred that the Muslim majority in the Levant unleashed on the Jews who had lived there peacefully for centuries. But again, at this time, a very small amount of Jews were in the land. The big number of Jewish emigres did not begin until the 19th century. There were many individuals who attempted to come many communities who attempted to emigrate, but only in the 19th century and even towards the end of the 19th century did it become a mass movement. There were various communities that began to emigrate in the 19th century. And they came in waves. The first wave of emigration was known as the First Aliyah, And that significantly boosted the number of Jews in the land. And it's important to note, this is before the advent and the popularization of secular Zionism. The Jews who came in the first wave were almost exclusively religious Jews who were drawn to the land for spiritual reasons. In Europe, secular Jewry Or secular leaning Jewry was in the middle of a prolonged cycle of assimilation. The emancipation of European Jewry that began in France and spread to the rest of Europe was in full swing. Jews were allowed to leave the ghettos and join the universities and become full citizens and were welcomed into the greater society. But that changed. A series of pogroms were unleashed all over Russia in the 1880s. Every single large Jewish community in Russia, every single one, was attacked, and many of the smaller ones as well. Drunken Russian mobs swept through the Jewish communities, looting, burning, and destroying property, raping, beating, and of course, killing Jews as well. To make matters worse, the authorities did not stop the rampage. They encouraged it. Tens of thousands of Russian Jews became homeless, and their lives were devastated. And many decided to leave. The vast majority of Russian Jews fled to America. In the 1870s, Russian Jewish immigration to the United States was 40,000. In the 1880s, it was 135,000. In the 1890s, 280,000. In the 1900s and the aughts, more than 700,000 Russian Jews fled to America. But a sizable portion looked towards Palestine. They wanted to settle in their ancestral lands. There was a stirring a movement of Zionism, of religious Zionism, became known as the Chovah the lovers of Zion. They wanted to go back home. As is common when there's any horrific outbreak of Jew hatred, the Russian antisemitism that reared its ugly head in Russia in the 1880s, it brought about a spiritual renaissance. And a spiritual reckoning for Russian Jews. Many of them, many of European Jewry in general, had drunk the Kool Aid. We could be Russians. We could join the general community. We could be accepted. All of our problematic Jewish tendencies and customs and ways, we could drop them. But when the Jews were rejected by their Russian benefactors, and they see the terrible anti-Semitism. There's a strong bounce-back, boomerang movement to re-embrace their Judaism. And by the way, the same thing happened in Germany in the 1930s. So this fledgling movement of lovers of Zion that sprang up in Russia, it gained steam. And it has to remain covert because they don't want to raise the ire of the of the russian tsar or the ottoman sultan who ruled palestine at the time and yes it was very small but the russians who fled some of them went to palestine and they started building out the land and they built out agricultural settlements and they built cities and yes they lived in grinding Poverty, but the settlement of the land grew. And they were aided by generous Jewish benefactors. Chief among them is the Baron Rothschild. Many of them who came barely subsisted. Many who came actually returned to Europe because they faced mass starvation. They just simply could not survive. But this momentum of Jewish emigration began and would yet strengthen. That's very important to remember. Palestine is at this time in the late 19th century. It's not a state of its own. It's a province of the Ottoman Empire. And there were lots of Arabs who lived there relatively, but they were mostly nomadic Bedouins who didn't live in cities, but were encamped in various places and would move with regularity. There's this complete fiction out there that the Zionists came and they displaced the peaceful Palestinians. There weren't any Palestinians and there wasn't any displacement. In fact, the Jews who settled the land, the land that they settled was all legally purchased from absentee landlords, from Arabs, from Turks, from various real estate speculators, even land that was owned by someone who was willing to sell, but was being worked upon by the Arabs, Jews abstained from buying that land. There was so much land available, more than the Jews can purchase. They didn't touch any land that was being worked upon by the Arabs. The land was mostly barren. In 1867, Mark Twain traveled all throughout the land and he wrote about it extensively. And I want to read you a citation. I saw this in Alan Dershowitz's The Case for Israel, which is a very handy guide to dispel all the misconceptions about the legitimacy of Israel. So he brings this citation. He's going through various parts of the land that he saw and how empty it is. Stirring scenes occur in the Jezreel Valley no more. There isn't a solitary village throughout the entire extent. Not for 30 miles in either direction. There are two or three small clusters of Bedouin tents, but not a single permanent habitation. One may ride 10 miles hereabouts and not see 10 human beings. Come to the galley for that, these unpeopled deserts, these rusty mounds of barrenness that never, never, never do shape the glare from their harsh outlines and fade and faint into vague perspective that melancholy ruin of Capernaum, this stupid village of Tiberius. We reached Tabor safely. We saw—we never saw a human being on the whole route. Nazareth is forlorn, forlorn. Jericho, the accursed, lies in a smouldering ruin today, even as Joshua's miracle left it more than three thousand years ago. Bethlehem, and Bethany, and their poverty and their humiliation have nothing about them. Now to remind one that they once knew the high honor of uh, J.C.'s presence, okay? It goes through place by place. It's desert. It's empty. It's barren. It's completely devoid and bereft of humanity. The land was barren. That's a fact. It was devoid of population. It was devoid of infrastructure. There was no way to really perpetuate a a strong, sizable population. The healthcare was abysmal. The infant mortality was high. The life expectancies were short. Water was scarce. There was malaria everywhere. Sanitation was dreadful. This idea, this idea that the Zionists upended a stable, thriving Palestinian state, it's just a lie. There never was a Palestinian state. There were a lot of Arab, there were a lot of Arabs there, but they were mostly transient Bedouin populations. And their circumstances vastly improved once the Jews began to arrive in numbers. Now it's important to note, there's a big difference between the state of assimilation of Jews who went to Palestine versus those who went to America in America the Russian Jews very quickly assimilated into the melting pot of America. There was no assimilation in Palestine. The Arab attitudes towards the Jews were very violent. And yes, some Arab leaders welcomed the idea of Jewish immigration because they would hire Arab labor to work the land. In 1882, for example, in Rishon Luzion, there were 40 Jewish families that moved there. But more than 400 Arab families moved there as well because there were, there were jobs created by the Jewish immigrants. But the prevailing attitude was one of unrestrained hostility towards these newcomers. Organized games of armed Arabs harassed and attacked Jewish settlements. The conditions for this fledgling Zionist movement in Palestine were quite harsh. In the 1890s, a second Zionist movement arose. Theodore Herzl, a storied Viennese journalist working in Paris, which was the birthplace of the Jewish emancipation in, in Europe, he witnessed the horrid anti-Semitism displayed in the Dreyfus trial. A French Jewish captain, Alfred Dreyfus, was baselessly convicted of treason and that unleashed a wave of anti-Semitism in France. If the birthplace of liberalism, of tolerance of the Jews, of emancipation of the Jews is revealed to be a hotbed of anti-Semitism, Jews have no other choice but to found our own country. That was Herzl's conclusion. And with vigorous energy and boundless charisma, And a gift for organization, Herzl propelled a movement of secular Zionism into high gear. In eighteen ninety-seven, the first Zionist Congress convenes in Basel. Secular Zionism is now on the world stage. And very quickly it becomes a mass movement in Europe. And that spawns a second wave of Jewish. Immigration to the land. 35,000 mostly secular Zionist pioneers, that come to the land in the hopes of actualizing the dream of Zionism in the land. And again, it's not hospitable. And they have to drain the malaria-ridden swamps and irrigate the land. But the movement has picked up steam. Hebrew is reestablished as the lingua franca of the land Hebrew was never extinct. There are many, many thousands of scholarly books written in Hebrew in each century. But Hebrew was really the language of Torah. The people conversed amongst themselves in Yiddish, and Ladino, the local language. In the early 20th century, conversational Hebrew began its comeback. So we have a second wave of immigration, a third, a fourth, a fifth, Things get even worse in Russia. A second series of deadly pogroms from 1903 to 1906, including the notorious Kishinev pogrom, convinced even more Jews in Russia to leave. Again, the vast majority go to America. But a growing number join the Zionist cause and head to Palestine. And there's more settlements, more Moshavs, more Kibbutzim. And with the burgeoning of the Jewish settlement of the land, the tension between the Jews and the Arabs, the Zionists and the Muslims rose. By 1890, there were a significant portion of Jews in Jerusalem that they comprised the majority. Ever since 1890, Jews have been the majority of the population of Jerusalem. But there were still 10 Arabs for every Jew in the land. There may be 25,000, 35,000 Jews all told. By the beginning of World War I in 1914, the Jewish population had grown to about 90,000. And now there are six Arabs for every one Jew. And World War I in Europe and the Russian Revolution of 1917... Convinced even more Jews that Europe is not going to be a hospitable home for the Jews. And many chose to be pioneers in the Holy Land. So Zionism is picking up steam. The fervor of a Jewish state is rising. The long-standing Muslim foothold in the land is slipping. And the Arabs are not too happy about this. And they're constantly attacking Jewish persons, communities, properties. And the Jews of the various communities, they band together. And they found small defensive militias to defend the fledgling settlement. The people, the property, and the tensions are only to rise from there. World War I marked the end of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Turks were the ruling party over not only the land of Israel, Palestine, a name, by the way, resurrected from the Roman Philistinia, which itself was borrowed from the long, extinct ancient Philistines. Besides for Palestine, the Ottomans ruled modern-day Egypt and Iraq and Syria and Lebanon and the Arabian Desert, Saudi Arabia. But the empire was in decline, and World War I was the final death knell of this sprawling empire. In World War I, the Ottomans sided with the central powers, with with Germany and Austria-Hungary, against the Allies, Britain, France, Russia, and the United States. And Britain captured Palestine. General Allenby conquered Jerusalem. And for the first time in 400 years, the Holy Land was wrenched from the Ottomans and from the Muslims. And the breakdown and the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire was anything but elegant. The League of Nations, which is the precursor to the United Nations, haphazardly carved up the territory without much regard for tribal and ethnic differences. So the Middle East is effectively divided into French and British zones. The French were given a mandate for Syria, for Lebanon, The British were given a mandate for Mesopotamia, which became Iraq, and for Palestine. And that became divided later on into what's called mandatory Palestine, and the Transjordan part of Palestine, which became the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. And out of the Arabian Peninsula came, of course, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, and the various Gulf states. Who's going to ultimately control the land of Israel? Palestine, the Brits, in hopes of finding allies during the war, they played both sides. They promised a state to the Jews and to the Arabs. In the Balfour Declaration of 1917, the British government promised a Jewish national home. In the Hussein McMahon Correspondence of 19. 19- 15 and 16, they promised that the Hashemite family would rule over most of the land if they would agree to revolt against the Ottoman Empire. There was also a third effort to establish a united Arab state covering the majority of the Middle East that, of course, was spawned by the British intelligence officer T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia. The Brits were were chiefly, primarily interested in Middle Eastern oil. As far as anyone knew, Palestine had none of it. But the Jews were very much interested in a state in Palestine. And of course, the Arabs, both local and elsewhere, were not too keen upon that. They wanted it for themselves. Yes, the Brits played both sides. But it cannot be underemphasized that they did formally accede to the formation of a Jewish home in Palestine. In November of 1917, British Foreign Secretary Lord Arthur Balfour, he sent the famous Balfour Declaration. He had befriended Zionist leader Chaim Weizmann. He was a very famous. Zionist leader, the first president of the State of Israel, and a chemist who had invented artificial acetone, which greatly aided the British war efforts. And this friendship made Lord Balfour more sympathetic to the Zionist cause. There's a famous anecdote that's told. After the international community proposed giving Uganda to To the Zionist movement, which of course was rejected because the Zionist movement was going back to our land, not to some other land. Weizmann had a conversation with Lord Balfour where he was telling him that, no, 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 Israel is our home. Palestine is our home. Jerusalem is our home. And Weizmann told Lord Balfour, would you give up London for Paris? He said, London, it's ours. This is our home. So Weissman responded, we lived in Jerusalem when London was still a marsh. That was a famous conversation in 1906. In 1917, Lord Balfour issued a letter that officially accepted the notion of a Jewish home in Palestine. His Majesty's government views with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home, home not state, okay, for the Jewish people, and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object objective, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, or the rights and political status enjoyed by the Jews in any other country. This letter, short as it is, is viewed as an inflection point in the history of Zionism. For the first time in history, a major power, and not just any power, the very power that is said to be the overseers of the very land that we so deeply covet, they have officially declared in a document approved by the cabinet, they declare their intention of establishing a Jewish home in Palestine. And yes, a home is not a state, and there's no timeline or a plan to implement it, and yes, they promised it to the Arabs as well, but this is a tectonic shift in the prospects, or at least the assumed prospects, of actually establishing a Jewish state in our ancestral lands. And this actually caused Zionism to become even more popular. Now it was viewed as, as tangible, as, as real, as legitimate. In 1914, there were 7,500 members of American Zionist societies. By 1918, that number had swelled to 30,000. By 1919, 150,000 American Zionists existed. Zionism had gone mainstream. And the immigration rates increased. The momentum was heading in the right direction. And of course, the Balfour Declaration incensed the local Arabs, and really Arabs everywhere. And the British, who were almost completely dependent on Arab oil, they began to backtrack almost immediately after the declaration. They pledged, to use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this objective, they failed to live up to the pledge. In fact, they did the the opposite. They said, no, there were some misunderstandings. We never intended all of Palestine to go to the Jews. East of the Jordan, which was part of the British Mandate of Palestine, that will go to the Arabs, of course. So 80% of the British Mandate land of Palestine would be for an exclusively Arab State with zero Jews. And what about the remaining 20%? Well, we have to see. We didn't really mean that they'll have a state, it's only a national home. Maybe they'll be a self governing body within a larger Arab state. And of course, they took concrete steps to limit the growth of the yeshuv of the settlement in the land. They severely curtailed Jewish immigration to the land. They did whatever they could to squelch the achievement of a Jewish state. The most notorious of these policies was the infamous White Paper of 1939. This official policy stipulated that Jewish immigration to Palestine would be limited to 15,000 a year, and that's only for five years, and afterwards, it would be contingent on the Arabs. If the Arabs agree, you could have more Jews Otherwise, the doors are shut. When European Jewry were being slaughtered by the Nazi genocide machine, British mandate Palestine, though purporting to support a Jewish homeland, kept its doors shut to Jews. The British repudiated the Balfour Declaration. But the momentum would not be stopped. The Jewish national movement of Zionism progressed and grew, and as it did, the conflicts between the Jews and the Arabs escalated. And as we shall see more, the fundamental conflict was not really about settlement or territory per se, it was ideological. The Arabs could not, would not, will not accept the notion of a Jewish homeland in Palestine, not completely, and not partially. And that fundamental principle will help explain what happened next. Over a hundred years ago, the Brits declared the Balfour Declaration. Over the course of the past century, the Jews built a robust state in part of the biblical lands, and the Arabs repeatedly chose violence. The Jews were always willing to compromise even to their detriment, and the Arabs were never willing to do so. Jews worked towards peace, and they accepted numerous peace agreements and frameworks, and the Arabs categorically refused every single deal. In our next episode, we will talk about what happened next. The Arab violence towards the Jewish settlers in the land only increased after World War I and the Balfour Declaration. As the Jews unified, so did the Arabs. Jews unified to build a homeland and Arabs unified to destroy this homeland. And they unleashed massacres and terrorist attacks and the Great Arab Revolt. The Arabs did whatever they could to impede, to disrupt, to hinder the Jewish settlement. And of course, the Jews fought back. And there were some good faith efforts to try to reach some sort of amicable solution to this conflict. And invariably, these efforts resulted in the Jews accepting the terms, even when they were highly disadvantageous, and the Arabs barking at every effort. In 1937, the British commission, the Peel Commission, Jews accepted, Arabs rejected. The United Nations had a partition plan, a state for the Jews, a state for the Arabs. Again, this is in only a small sliver of the British Mandate land. 80% of it already went to an Arab state. In the remaining 20%, they gave the majority of the land to the Arabs, and the Arabs rejected it. The Jews accepted the terms every time, And as the pioneers strove to build the land, the Jews were fighting on multiple fronts, fighting the Arabs, fighting the British, all the while the bulk of Jewry was trapped in Europe with no place to go, and the worst genocide in history was being perpetrated by the Germans. But the 19th century would see a marked shift in the history of the Jewish people the Jews began their trip back to their homeland in big numbers. The 20th century would see a complete transformation. After a thousand years of Jewish life in Europe, Jewish life in Europe would effectively come to an end with brutality and violence never before seen. By mid-century, the nation would coalesce back in the land with the founding and the flourishing of the Jewish state. Jews from all over the world will make their way back to the Holy Land, from Europe, of course, but from all over the Arab and Muslim world, Jews began coming home. But in said home, the Arabs, both those who lived in the land and those who were outside of it, they would prove to be a menace, a solution has yet To be found for this problem, even though many were proposed, as we shall yet see. I thank you for listening. It's great to be talking history once again. As always, my email address is RabbiWolbyJimba.com. I'm looking forward to our next opportunity to discuss what happened in the years that succeeded the Balfour Declaration and in the run-up to the founding of the state.